three and a half thousand years ago, someone made a a wish, you could say. I don't want to over-spiritualise that. A, a yearning in their heart, a request. You see, back then, the Holy Spirit wasn't poured out on all people. Back then, God set people apart and his spirit dwelt in them and and they called them prophets, people who were anointed um, differently to the rest of the community. And um, Moses was one of these such people. He had an amazing encounter with God. He experienced his presence in an amazing way. And God said to him, I'm going to put my spirit in you and set you apart for a purpose, which he did. And it impacted him personally and the whole Israelite nation. But there was a moment where they set 12 people apart and they had this special gathering and in that special gathering they too prophesied and it was pretty special. But they left that place and two of them continued doing it. So so someone decided to go to Moses and dob on them and said, said to Moses, hey, hang on, this isn't how it works. And Moses said to them, Are you coming and telling me for my sake? Do you think my my pride's sort of damaged here? Or do you think that there's something that I have that's different to everybody else, which he did have? And this is then what Moses said. I wish that all the Lord's people were prophets and that Lord would put his spirit on them. Three and a half thousand years ago, this is what Moses was saying. He wished that Everybody, all of the Lord's people were prophets and that the Lord put his spirit on them. Now, he recognised that there was a burden that he carried, a leadership burden that he carried that I suspect he would have enjoyed having that spread around too. But he's like, I'm not jealous of these people that are prophesying. I wish that everyone got to do that. Just think of that, three and a half thousand years ago. Because that wasn't the first and the last time. The prophet Joel, since then, he said, and this is him prophesying, so this is God speaking, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days. even on the servants, the lowly ones that weren't of any status. I will pour my spirit out in those days. Isaiah again has an experience of God. Remember, this isn't a time when individuals had a specific encounter with God and were set apart for a purpose. This was not normal. The prophet Isaiah declares In his experience of God, he says, this is what will happen. The fortress will be abandoned. The noisy city deserted. Citadels and watchtowers will become a wasteland. The delight of donkeys, a pasture for the flock. Everything's going to be ruined. Till the Spirit is poured out, poured on us from on high. And the desert becomes a fertile field. And the fertile field seems like a forest. The Lord's justice will dwell in the desert. His righteousness live in the fertile field. 
The fruit of that righteousness will be peace. Its effects will be quietness and confidence forever. He says later on, I will pour out my spirit on your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. Then one and a half thousand years after Moses said this, a freaky guy called John, who was also anointed, said this, I baptise you in water, but one who is more powerful than I will come, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptise you in the Holy Spirit and fire. And then that one came along, being Jesus. And this is what he said, 1,500 years after Moses. It is best for you that I go away. Because if I don't, the advocate, the Greek word is paraclete, which sort of means comforter, encourager, counsellor. We don't have one word for it, but advocate won't come. If Jesus doesn't go away, the advocate won't come. If I do go away, then I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world of its sin and of God's righteousness and of the coming judgment. The world's sin is that it refuses to believe in me. Righteousness is available because I go to the Father. And you will see me no more. Judgment will come because the ruler of this world has already been judged. There is so much more I want to tell you, but you can't bear it now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. He will not speak on his own, but will tell you what he has heard. He will tell you about the future. He will bring me glory by telling you whatever he receives from me. All that belongs to the Father is mine. This is why I said the Spirit will tell you whatever he receives from me. So this is the backdrop as we come to read Acts 2. This is a 1,500-year backdrop. From Moses 1,500 years earlier saying, I wish that all people experienced the Spirit like I do. Acts 2 verse 1 says, When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. Now you and I think of Pentecost as a Christian thing. But that's not what they're talking about when they say that. The day of Pentecost was a Jewish festival known as the Festival of Harvest. Interesting. The Festival Harvest. The word Pentecost means 150th because it was 50 days after the festival of the Passover. What happened at the Passover that year? Does anyone remember? On the night before he was betrayed, Jesus and his disciples were celebrating the Passover. Now, if you don't know, the Passover was a remembrance back 1,500 years to Moses 
Because what happened was Moses told the Israelite people in captivity, stuck as slaves in Egypt, that if you follow these instructions that God gives you, you will be rescued. And the instructions were very clear. Take an unblemished lamb, sacrifice the lamb, paint the blood from the lamb over the lampposts, and you will not be condemned. You will be freed from your oppression and the angel of death will pass over you, hence pass over. Jesus declared when he celebrated Passover that he was that Passover lamb, that he was that sacrifice. And now 50 days later, we reach this point. Now, you know what also they celebrated at Pentecost? Moses receiving the law. Because do you know how long after they were rescued from Egypt that Moses received the law? 50 days. They don't actually know that, but their guesstimate is 50 days. So Pentecost is 50 days after Passover because 50 days after Passover, Moses received the law. Right? This is all going somewhere. This is all really the way God puts things together. We, we, we're excited by how God puts together songs and prayers and things this morning. He's been doing this for thousands of years. But this is, this is, so on the day of Pentecost, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. And it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as a spirit gave them utterance. So they've had this experience. Jesus told them to wait. So for 40 days, Jesus went around showing himself, showing that he was alive. And he said, I'm going back to the Father. Wait, wait. And we talked last week about that time of waiting. Prayer, worship, that's what you do when you wait. And they were waiting. For 10 days they waited. And on this day, the day of Pentecost, something spectacular happened. Does anyone know what happened on the day that Moses received the law? Can anyone think back to what happened? I'll give you the clue. The Mount Sinai was covered in cloud. There was a sound like trumpets. There was wind. And it says, the Lord descended on the mountain in fire. And what did he do? He spoke. Can anyone see a link to what's going on here? There was a sound like a rushing wind. There was fire that descended. Be clear here, it may not have been wind and it may not have been fire, but this is the best description of what's going on here. Best human words to describe this spectacular event that's happening. And every one of them started speaking. Not their own words, but the words of God. 
There is no confusion of what's going on here. The same almighty God that shook Mount Sinai, that scared the people, was doing something spectacular here. Something that had been promised and and prophet after prophet had been waiting for. That Jesus said, is better than if I stay with you. It gets better than me being with you. And this is what they were experiencing. This is not some little backyard operation going on here. This is God sharing, pouring out his spirit on mankind. And it is just as spectacular in that little upstairs room as it was on Mount Sinai. And there's links and there's clues there for us to show how powerful and spectacular it is. Now, there's a whole heap of things that, and I'm going to come back to this later, but there's a whole heap of things that we attach that aren't here. They were actually speaking languages that were known languages at this point. In Corinthians, we hear of languages of angels. So there's different types of when we hear tongues. This was actually known languages, and it says, but both do exist. So let's continue. Now, there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. Just to clarify, this is someone who lived in Jerusalem sharing this. Every nation that they're aware of. There weren't any Australians there, I don't think. Just to put context to it. In their known world, there were people from all over that area. And he goes on to say what that known world is in a minute. And at this sound, the multitude came together. So this sound, this, what they were experiencing in this room was being heard in the region. It wasn't just in their heads. And they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, are not all these who speak Galileans? Now when you hear that, think Scottish. They don't even speak English well. How can they be speaking articulately our language? The Galileans weren't known for being the fairly guttural sort of speaking. They weren't known for speaking, you know, Queen's language. They were sort of backyard sort of people. So they're going, aren't these guys Galileans? How do they speak articulately in our language? And how is it that we hear each of us in our own native language? Parthians and Medes and Alamites? And residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phygria, I was doing pretty well up to there, and Palamphia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and Protestants, Cretans and Arabians. This is telling you what the known world was. We're talking about lots of languages. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. The mighty works of God. The Spirit is on them. And just like in Moses' time, God is speaking. It's about God. And all were amazed and perplexed, 
saying to one another, what does this mean? But others, mocking, said, they are filled with new wine. They're drunk. Now, who would mock them? Just think about it. Some were amazed and bewildered, and some mocked them. Who would mock them and think that they were drunk? Religious, potentially? Pharisees? It's not written, but I would suggest those that didn't understand them. So there's all these languages going on, but if it sounds like gibberish, they must be junk. You know, if you're speaking Greek and I don't know Greek, then you sound like you're weird, right? So it's likely, and this is me, not them, not, not the, the word, but it's likely that those were mocking didn't understand. They didn't get it, which is a really interesting little, little side bit there. There is an obvious connection between the spirit being poured out and an impact being made. There is an obvious connection here. And this is a spectacular picture. There's a guy by the name of John Stott. He's an English uh, theologian, clergy dude. Smart guy, well-respected. This is what he says about the Holy Spirit. Without the Holy Spirit, Christian discipleship would be inconceivable, even impossible. There can be no life without the life giver, no understanding without the spirit of truth, no fellowship without the unity of the spirit, no Christ-likeness of character apart from his fruit, and no effective witness without his power. As a body without a breath is a corpse, so the church without the spirit is dead. This is his reflection of the significance of what was happening at the start of the church. And we'll continue through Acts and you will see this played out. But I want to give you a little bit of a snapshot, a head start today, just to paint a picture of the Holy Spirit. Nine facts that I think are worth us framing the understanding of the Holy Spirit. And as I said, it's a cheat sheet for what comes in Acts, before and after in the Gospels as well. But I think it's useful as we continue this morning to have this as a framework. So here we go, the first one. The Holy Spirit is the one who convicts people regarding sin, righteousness and judgment. And we heard that in the Gospel of John. So there's a little bit of relief for us as followers of Jesus, A, that we don't have to do it, but also we don't have to run around panicking that we're wrong all the time and God's going to, you know, got to dodge the lightning bolts because the Holy Spirit puts his hand up and says, I will do that. My job, leave it to me. Awesome, thank you, God. Let's, we're done. Number one's good enough for me. No, we're going to move on. The Holy Spirit is God's counsellor to us 
And we read that as well, reminding and teaching Jesus' instruction. He's a counsellor. The Holy Spirit makes believers new eternal creation. Scripture says in the same way that Jesus was brought back to life, the Spirit does that for those that believe. A new eternal creation. Amazing. The Holy Spirit lives or, or dwells is the, is the Christianese word, like a home, dwells in believers. The Holy Spirit is a guarantee that God's covenant is authentic. That's pretty cool. If you ever wondered whether God's covenant was for you, the Holy Spirit is a guarantee of that. The Holy Spirit is a source of truth, revelation, wisdom, prophecy, and power. And that is probably part of the emphasis of what Luke wanted us to understand in this passage. That was the first thing that that sort of came out of the disciples when they received the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit helps and intercedes in our weakness. The Holy Spirit helps and intercedes in our weakness. The Holy Spirit gives spiritual gifts to believers. Gifts that go beyond our natural talents and skills and things we've trained and equipped in. Spiritual gifts that the Holy Spirit gives. And lastly, the Holy Spirit enables believers to produce good fruit in their lives. Now, just like that day that was spectacular, the day of Pentecost, I believe, and this is not exhaustive, by the way, I hope you have other things that you're aware of, of the Holy Spirit, but I believe these nine things are spectacular. And I can testify to all nine of them. I haven't fully tested the eternal part of number three. Right? I can't, I can't say that's finished yet. And so I've got to put a little bit of asterisk on that one. But I'll be able to joke with you in heaven about that one and go, hey, there you go. We finished number three. But every single one of the other ones, I can testify to being true to being real and to being current for believers and for myself as a believer. I think that's really valuable to understand and to know. But I also know that is not everybody's experience. And that's okay. That's okay. I haven't experienced this all my life. From the moment I became a Jesus follower, these all weren't very real to me because there's something, there's two things that are really important. The thing that I want to point out is that every single one of these have an offering and an invitation to respond. They have an offering and an invitation to respond. 
you can ignore the counsellor's advice. There's something offered. The counsel of Jesus is offered to you as a believer. But you can say, no, thank you. You can be given spiritual gifts and say, hmm, not today. Every single one of these, and this is something that's mind-blowing about a God that has all power and authority, that he never takes our choices off us. Tanya jokes going, I wish that when I became a believer, he took my choices away. Yeah, I choose for him to take my choices away because it would be so much easier if my choices were away and his choices were put back put in that place. And, and I absolutely can resonate with that because sometimes I make bad choices. A lot of the times I make bad choices. And yet, again, if I choose number seven, I choose to let him even take over in my weakness. Every single one of these has an invitation to respond. And that's where I want to land today. I want to land in that place. It's where we kind of started. The word surrender has been used. God's presence has been used. All this leads back to God's Holy Spirit living and active today and the invitation to respond. There's something I'm passionate about when Scripture refers to being filled with the Holy Spirit. There's often this idea of a petrol tank. I'm a quarter full and I need to have another three quarters filled up. It's better described in this invitation and response space. Because when my, my most inspirational reference point of this is when Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, shared, witnessed to those that were gathered there He was fully surrendered. He'd fully let go of his choice and fully embraced the Spirit. So being filled with the Spirit is about fully letting go as much as it's about fully receiving. It's not a tank. It's a surrender. And in that place, when I let go, God is then able to do what he wants to do, what he always wanted to do.